Welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. Before we start today, a reminder to follow us on Spotify so you're up to date with all the exclusive content we create for you. Whether you're commuting, relaxing at home, or going for a walk, let the voices and engaging content of this podcast be your companion. Let's dive in. In this episode, we're exploring the business of hydrography. We'll look at what, what's so exciting about the field, and we'll discuss what it's like for women to work in a male-dominated sector like this. Joining us are two experienced members of the hydrographic community, Sarah Jones Couture from the International Hydrographic Organization and Helen Stewart from Fugro. They're going to share what they've learned as women in the sector and describe some of the work the industry should do to be more inclusive. Hello, Sarah and Helen, welcome to Planet Beyond. Can I ask you, Helen, to start us off by telling us a a little bit about what hydrography is and what a hydrographer actually does? Well, I will start with what a hydrographer actually does, and that's eat large amounts of chocolate. Um, Working offshore can be very tiring and boring, and chocolate makes everybody feel better, therefore chocolate is involved. The serious answer to that question is a hydrographer is a surveyor, first and foremost, who like any other kind of surveyor is interested in positioning and finding out where something is relative to a known reference frame. And then on top of that, we're doing that in an environment where we can't go out and do a reverse traverse. Nobody is going to be standing at the bottom of the sea with a leveling rod trying to find the position and elevation. So we use other tools to find out the water depth, sonars in particular, but LIDAR, satellites, old-fashioned sounding poles still work perfectly well. And then being surveyors, we put that information together so that we know where things are and critically how deep the water is relative to everything else around it. Why do we still need hydrographers? Can't computers do all that work? I like to tell people that the computers can measure things but it takes a human being to put it into context that other human beings can use. Uh, A sonar, for instance, is highly computer driven. We use a lot of different software algorithms and increasingly AI to process the data that the computer provides to us. But if I, what I really want to know is where it is deep enough for me to take my ship in, I have to know, well, how big is my ship? Where am I going? What am I doing? And that's where the human interface comes in. Sarah, how would you explain what hydrography is? 
hydrography is a, a bit of a lesser known science, so I think it is interesting to mention this. Mm. Um, so hydrography is an applied science which studies the physical features of the oceans, coastal areas, lakes and rivers, as well as predicting their change over time. And what's important is it supports all marine activities, including safety of navigation, but the use of marine resources, scientific research and environmental protection. And one of the things which I find fascinating with hydrography is there are a lot of different professions in it. You asked, what is a hydrographer? There is a hydrographer, but now you have oceanographers, data scientists, geo geodesists, lots of different professions working in hydrography. So can you both tell us how you got into hydrography and, and what, was, what was it that first interested you about this area? Well, I had no idea what hydrography was until I got to university. And because this is in spite of the fact that I grew up in a household with a trained professional geographer, we had atlases and maps all over the house. And what my father did was some of the first analysis using Landsat 1 back in the Stone Age to develop maps and analysis from that one. Landsat 1 was the first US Earth observing satellite explicitly designed to study planet Earth and was launched back in 1972. I occasionally will sit down with him and we'll lay out the map that he made on the floor in his living room and we'll compare that to what I'm doing, which is so far ahead of what he did that it might as well be magic. And I had no idea that such a thing existed. And then when I got to university, I took a class that had a component involving navigation and I learned that nautical charts existed. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head that, wow, I can do this for a living. This is amazing. I want to do that and did not do that right away. It took me about six years from when I was at that point until I had finished my bachelor's degree, I had finished my master's degree, and then went out into the career workforce, and I was working for the U.S. government on one of their hydrographic ships. That's how I got started, and 20 years later, here I am. And Sarah, how did you start your journey in hydrography? Well, I actually started off in oil and gas, and I worked in oil and gas for many years. Um, and then in 2016, I made the switch to intergovernmental organizations and I was doing communications always in the ocean field. And then pretty much by chance, I actually just answered an ad online um, and ended up working at the International Hydrographic Organization in 2019. Can you give us an outline of what the International Hydrographic Organization or IHO is? The IHO is an intergovernmental organization which aims to have all the world's oceans surveyed and charted, and it has 98 member states around the world. We'd like to focus this discussion not just on hydrography, but specifically about women in hydrography. Can you give us an idea about the current representation of women in hydrography? Well, the IHO did a survey last year among national hydrographic offices to see what the demographics were. 
And the countries that responded, the numbers show that 25% of employees of national hydrographic offices are women only, and of their leaders, only 20% are women. And when you look at the national hydrographer, so that's the number one hydrographer in the country, only 6% are women around the world. So it is a majoritarily male uh, environment. That tracks with what I've observed. Um, I have been working in the private sector for the last 15 years. I left the government in 2008 and moved into the private sector. And that what I have noticed is there tend to be more women in the government sector by far than in the private sector that where you do find women in the private sector they're not off they're not as often offshore they will be doing work in the office and may or may not go to sea but somebody who has a PhD in oceanography is not somebody that they're going to send out on a job that a technician can do just fine. They need her in the office doing some of the more specialized work. The other thing that I have noticed is that in the private sector, the number of women on top dwindles far more rapidly even than in the public and governmental sectors. And that tracks along again with what Sarah just said. It occurs at all levels. There are more women um, who are just freshly coming out of university in the bottom ranks, just like there are more men. There are fewer people at the top of an organization in general. Where things, where women in particular tend to get squeezed out in what I've observed and written about, I wrote an article for the International Hydrographic Review, the IHO's peer-reviewed journal. What the, what, what seems to happen are two things. The first one is that at about the time people get to be about seven to ten years in the field, Part of what happens is people tend to leave to go to ancillary ancillary fields. Part of it is that that's when people hit the first promotion and men are more often promoted than women at that women tend to miss that first promotion and that is holding them back. But that's also the time of life where people tend to want to start a family. And if you require a person to go to sea, then you can't be pregnant or nursing while you're offshore. It's dangerous um, for everyone involved. So that tends to be a major inflection point where women leave the discipline and a lot of them don't come back. Has there been a change occurring that, that you've noticed within the industry regarding women's involvement? Well, what I do see is I see a lot more young women coming out of university with qualifications who are interested in coming into the field. The offshore wind farm sector is heavily recruiting women and that's paying off. And the number, again, the number of women with professional degrees and um, higher qualifications coming in, that's increased. I'm seeing more women in academia. Again, 
people so that again that sets up kind of a a two-track system if you will people who are coming in with masters and doctorates are unlikely to want to go work offshore specifically in basic level positions nor are at least here in the private section sector private sector companies don't necessarily want to send out their highest value people doing a garden variety job so what ends up happening i've noticed is that guys with lower educational credentials will go offshore and women will be doing office work and what that in turn sets up is if you have to have time offshore to be considered for promotion but you don't go offshore because you're too high value coming in the door to want to send you offshore that's a disadvantage and the other thing that happens is that um people doing hiring don't necessarily hire women right off the top and it's again unconscious biases coming into play that you can't have women advance up the career ladder if they never get on the ladder to begin with yeah there's this thing there's quite a body of research where they talk about the broken rung of the career ladder so women for various reasons in their 30s when men get promoted or when men go offshore um, they miss this first rung of promotion and it means they're never actually able to catch up later on and so increasingly organizations they're trying to focus on what can they do to fix that first rung of the ladder you talked earlier about an unconscious bias as if a lot of these things are going on underneath the radar screen now that's harder to fix isn't it people are not perfect and I've been doing quite a bit of speaking lately on women in hydrography, and it's really too bad you can't show this on a podcast. I show people picture of their six individual, a slide with six people on the slide. One of them is a young woman wearing a Houston Texans jersey. One of them is a middle-aged white man. One of them is an elderly Japanese man. One is a blonde woman at her wedding. One of them is sitting a woman sitting in a very large chair and one of them is a young woman with absolutely spectacular fashion sense honestly i wish i looked that good out in public who's obviously on her way to a party she has a gift in one hand and she's holding balloons in another and i say okay look at these people and tell me who is an olympic athlete who is disabled who has a chronic illness who is an immigrant and who speaks three or more languages and every time i have shown this people start that nervous giggle of oh my goodness what do i do followed by hey wait a minute that's simone biles she's very obviously noticeable and then a lot of talk about who might be who and then i go to the companion slide and it shows every single person on that slide in their olympic discipline they're all olympic athletes and so what the whole purpose of all of that is was unconscious biases what 
And the question I was asking really is what does an Olympic athlete look like? And if you have only a single idea of what an Olympic athlete looks like, then you miss all these other people. The woman on the way to the party wearing the beautiful outfit is the current world champion 10 meter sighted pistol. So she's the best pistolier on the planet. Does that what you think of when you think of the best pistolier on the planet? But then I follow up with, okay, now that you've got that in your mind, what does an ROV pilot look like? What does a surveyor look like? What does a hydrographer look like? And the answer is really, they can come from anywhere. They can be of any gender. There's nothing in particular about operating the robotic arms of a remotely operated vehicle that requires one particular type of human. Any type of human can do it. But when you have the unconscious bias of what an ROV pilot looks like, which is a dude from Aberdeen, probably, probably, then you exclude all the other potential people who could do that just as well. And when you do that at the very, very beginning of someone's career, that's the first broken rung. Or when you have ROV pilots and you want to train one of them to be an ROV supervisor, or you have a person who could become your next party chief or could become your next shift supervisor, what do they look like? And if the mental image you have of a shift supervisor is of a white man, then your perfectly qualified woman of Filipino ethnic descent is going to get ignored based on that alone and not any of her credentials and qualifications. And that's the second broken rung. So then, how do we get people to change unconscious biases? Surely, people operate that way because it's the easiest way to operate. It, it is, and that's why I started off when I said human beings aren't perfect. And then the other thing that's really key to understand, a couple of them actually, one of them is we don't know what we don't know. I talked, to, I recently went to the IPF 2023 conference in Baltimore that is a offshore wind trade show in the US and several people asked me in a panel that I was sitting on on women in hydrography several people asked me well how do we get more women and then for those of you who are not from North America Baltimore has a large population of African Americans and one woman in particular wanted to know how to get African-American girls in, interested in the sciences. And I started out saying the exact thing, you don't know what they don't, you don't know. If you don't know anybody who's doing something like I do, then how do you know that this is an option that's available to you? I grew up in a house with a professional geographer and maps everywhere, and I had no idea that hydrography was a thing until I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And so if you live in a town where you've never seen a hydrographer, never met one, nobody knows one, how do you know that that even exists? And so that's part of an unconscious bias, is realizing that you don't know what you don't know. And then the second part of that is that if we have our unconscious biases pointed out to us and we are conscientiously thinking about them, we can realize that they're there. I don't want to say overcome them because that's too trite and cheesy, 
but we can realize that it's there. We can realize that it's a thing and we can stop and think, okay, can I do this better? And I do want to point out that we do this not just for women, but we can do this for people who are not of the same race or ethnic background as us, people who are from different religions as us. We can do it from people who are different age. Yeah, I think this is somewhere where training is really important. We all have some kind of unconscious bias. There was a, a study recently, the Integrating Women Leaders Foundation conducted the State of Allyship in Action benchmark study. And it showed, it asked men, how often do they believe biased behaviors happen to women in their organizations? And 10% of men thought well, only 10% of men thought that women were interrupted or spoken over more often than others. Of those organ that organization, men who actually participated in allyship communities, so I would imagine they have a bit more awareness about some of these issues, that 29% of them thought this happened to women in their organizations. And of course, when they asked women, 46% of them said it happened to them. But just by looking at the numbers for men, it clearly shows that those who are involved in these questions, they are already more aware than the others. So perhaps doing some training on these issues could help. You mentioned earlier the low number of women in senior positions in hydrography. Now, this must or, or could lead to these issues being missed and not considered important by management. I, I have a story about that, actually. One of the operations managers wanted to talk to me about hiring and looking for new hiring people. And he said, we like to look for people who can hunt and fish because that way we know that they can think on their feet, that they can adapt to changes. And as it ha so happened, about a month later, we had one of those supposedly anonymous intercompany reviews that talked about it. And I thought, okay, well, I wanted to know how to respond to it. Here we go. And in this one, I will say that when I was done with it, I signed my name because there was zero possibility of being anonymous after the comment that I made. I said, mm -hmm. if that is that was the specific criteria that you were looking for, you would have walked right by the single most talented person in the office division that I had come from. She was very, very quiet, um, very modest demeanor, and she was unanimously voted by the Australasian Spatial Science Institute and the New Zealand Institute of Surveyors to get a full ride bursary to attend the Cat A program at the University of Plymouth earlier that year. She didn't hunt or fish that I know of. She was literally silent a large part of the working day when she was busy and focusing on things. She did very, very good work, very, very well. And her name is Dr. Emily Tidy Todd. And she's now the professor of hydrography at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And they would have walked right past her. Mm -hmm again, because of that unconscious bias and something what, that, again, that Sarah said about 
the quiet ones. And three months later, after a round of hiring, there were three new women who were hired in different areas, all of whom had sparkling credentials, academic credentials, and none of whom hunted or fished. Mm -hmm. So sometimes really the only thing you can do is point it out to someone and keep pointing it out. And that's the thing about hydrography. There are so many different professions. There are so many different aspects to it, whether it's the one, the person collecting the data, the person analyzing the data, the person interpreting it afterwards. And I think it, it is important to, to appreciate to the full extent all these different professions. And traditionally, hydrography was fed from the Navy. So I think that's part of the heritage, why there were perhaps more men in the field. So how much of this issue stems from it being simply overlooked by overwhelmingly male management? Or is there also an issue of overt misogyny in the industry? I'll jump in on that. It's a mixture of things. There is absolutely some overt misogyny there's people who need to be reminded to be thoughtful of other people's needs. Um, and that's normal. We all do that. And in some cases, like the example that I gave, we have to, you do have some, you do have to have somebody who will step up and say, no, really, this is happening or you need to have institutional guidelines that you attempt to take the individual people and separate them from the problem. And when I say that, if you want to think again about Olympic athletes, there's a lot that goes into that, but when you have Olympic trials, there are very defined criteria of who can get in and under what circumstances you can get in. So you do have to have some sort of objective criteria that everybody needs to meet. And beyond that, the best things you can do, number one, is anonymize your applicants so that you don't know what you you can't form an unconscious bias about a person that you don't know anything about other than here's their career path but the other thing is you have to have a diverse hiring panel if your hiring panel and i'm going to use a ludicrous example here if your hiring panel for hydrographers are all people from the city of Fargo, North Dakota, which is approximately at the geographic center of North America, and the only oceans in the area are um, fossil from 50,000 years ago, are you really going to get what you need in terms of building out a good hydrographic survey team? Or are you going to get what that one very small group of people think a hydrographer needs to have? So apply that to diversity. You want to have women on the team. You want to have people who don't look like you on the team. You want to have people from different backgrounds of you on the team. If you are going to be reasonably working in an area where people are not going to be speaking 
the language that you grew up speaking, it's really going to be helpful to have a person on your team who speaks that language and can evaluate how well somebody will be able to work and communicate in that area. If all of these things come into play, but gender and ethnic diversity is high on the list. In a lot of countries where we work, there are no laws preventing women from reaching these positions. But when you look at the numbers, clearly there is something happening. And part of the difficulty is trying to get people to understand that there is an issue. First of all, it's getting them under to understand why do we actually need women? You know, our organizations are working fine. You know, the positions are there, the positions are being advertised. Why does it matter if we need a few more women? That That's the first thing. And the second thing is, what do we actually do? What is holding women back? So these are discussions which really need to be had, and but then people need to actually want to change it. In English, we say the proof is in the pudding. So the numbers speak that there is something happening. I'm wondering though, is the solution as simple as just promoting more women? In part, I'd say yes and no. I wouldn't want, I mean, I think none of us women working in the field would like someone to be promoted just because they're a woman, because then they would get lots of backlash and they would say, well, look, we've promoted a woman and look how terrible she's doing. Um, so no, what we would want is that they promote some of the very qualified women who work in this field. It is an organization's interest to actually have more diversity. Um, a McKinsey report, Why Diversity Matters, concluded that companies with better gender diversity were 21% more pro profitable than competitors. So us at the International Hydrographic Organization, we work a lot with national hydrographic offices, so we don't have this imperative to be profitable. But especially post-COVID, the workplace is changing. People, they want more flexibility. They want a better work-life balance. This is something which is important to women, but it's also something which is important to men. And if organizations want to stay efficient, if they want to retain talent going forwards, perhaps they should consider some of these questions. I'll jump in for the couple of things, one of them related to COVID and one of them related to promotions. Again, I'm from the United States and every other country's experiences will vary. Some will vary quite tremendously, but only in the US, only in the age group of people that we consider working age, so between 18 and 64, and only in the last three years, if you count the number of people who died, both of COVID and all other causes, you count the number of people who are now permanently disabled, again, a lot of them by COVID, the number of people who retired early, the number of people who left the paid workforce to do unpaid care work, usually for children or for elders or disabled family members. Most of those people are women, by the way. And then the immigrants who didn't come, and I'm in, including university students who didn't come to the US to do their studies, we lost somewhere between eight and 13 million people. So we lost about a Belgium and in two and a half years. And that is 
an enormous contraction of the workforce. So why do hydrographic organizations need to look for women? We need people, period. If you're excluding people, period, on something very arbitrary, then you're making your own job harder for no good reason. Like, why would you do that when you could have these all these talented people? All you need to do is get over your unconscious bias and hire them. And then getting to what Sarah discussed about hiring and promoting women, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, the glass cliff. The glass cliff is what happens when a group of predominantly men won't hire a woman until their organization is in crisis. And they, because why would they do something different? We've always been doing the same thing. It's always been the same three white guys and everything's working just fine. But then the organization's in crisis. It, that's the point when they decide to do something different. So that's the point when they hire women. So she's already essentially being set up to fail. And if the organization that is already in crisis the crisis deepens and it becomes worse then instead of blaming the crisis and the people who set it up they blame the person who was set up to fail in the first place and that becomes a, a very vicious self-perpetuating cycle that well we you know we put a woman in charge and it got worse so why should we do it again instead of fix the broken rung at the first promotion so you get good woman leaders coming in and then when you promote women promote women when your organization is not in crisis, promote women during normal, ordinary garden variety times. And that's what's not happening. Is there an example outside of hydrography that you could share? I believe the um, government of Iceland during the global financial crisis in 2008 is a good example of this around the time COVID broke out, several women leaders were elected to office, again, during a time of great national crises. And oddly enough, the nations that were led by women suffered far less death and disability because of the policies that the women leaders chose to enact during COVID than countries that were led by men. And even in countries where the, the one led by women and the one led by men are nominally very similar, Finland and Sweden, Finland did not suffer nearly the medical devastation that Sweden did. And even though Sweden suffered far less than, say, the UK because of a variety of reasons, it still suffered more than the country that was led by women. But that's it. I mean, there's lots of the studies, they conclude, okay, the organizations led by women doing better. But that leads to the question, is it just because they are led by women that they're doing better? Or is it just that the organizations are more attuned to listening to their employees, to what their employees are suggesting, whoever they are, wherever they're from, and in turn, they're more in, they're more they're better at listening to what their stakeholders want, what their clients want. So it's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, but a positive self-fulfilling prophecy. I imagine you, you both have had or heard of examples of, of women in the industry with concerns being ignored or, or getting pushed back by male superiors. 
is it difficult to speak out about these issues? Do, do you need a, a certain amount of courage to challenge the industry? It is difficult. I mean, I'm a big believer, well, my job is communication. So I'm a big believer in communicating about issues and raising awareness. And I am also a firm believer that people don't usually want to cause offense. I haven't had someone who's openly gone out and said some a really negative comment or you can't do that because you're a woman it, it very often it's just unconscious it's just they don't actually realize how their comment can hurt or or the, the consequences of their actions but it is difficult raising these like how do you make people aware of what is happening without being considered the angry woman, without being considered the pain. And of course you can do it smiling, you can say it nicely, but it is difficult. I don't know if I would describe myself as brave enough. I am in a position in my career where I can say these things so when I say that I'm at a position in my career where I have enough security to say this, that's a, that's a really important and powerful thing. I don't know if I could have done this when I was 23 or 24, even though I was seeing evidence of gender bias back then, even though I was seeing racial bias. Um, the, the phrase, the men go offshore and the women process, I saw that plenty of times. And by the way, that has financial implications. If you get paid for going offshore, but you don't get paid for working in the office, then yeah, that has financial implications. But are you secure enough to speak up about it? And the implications of that, if you think about it, are staggering. And that's why this is a leadership problem. It's not a women problem. I'm using finger quotes there. It's not a women problem. We're not the ones that started this we're not necessarily the ones with the power to fix it. It's, this is a leadership issue. Can we talk now about positive change? Is there anything you've seen or, or expect to see soon that will make the difference? Remote hydrography is fantastic. I can sit at my desk and operate a sonar on a vessel that is somewhere off the coast of Brazil and I am here in my home office in Houston. That is wonderful. That means that for the people who are out on the vessel, they have access to expertise, support, all kinds of things that they didn't use to before. If you think about it, that if you're having some sort of trouble with your sonar that you don't know what's going on and it, it's not acting right, then they can pick up the phone, they can call somebody like me and they can get real-time technical support. I can actually log into their system and see what's going on and go, okay, you need to do these three things and then your data should sort it out. That is phenomenal. That is huge. We didn't have that. And something else that remote hydrography does is that it opens up the field to people who previously would either not be able to participate in the first place or who eventually had to leave the field for health issues, family issues, to avoid burnout. 
So you get to keep all of these talented people in the discipline that you didn't have before. And it's wonderful. We didn't have that 20 years ago when I got started. And it's taken some time to develop into what it is, but it's great. I mean, I think slowly people's minds are changing or they're seeing some of the positives in all of this. A few years ago, it wasn't rare to see a panel only made of men. Mm. Now there is some more thought to have a bit of diversity and perspective. So it's just small things like this, but change is happening. And that's extremely positive. Helen, I know you've worked on a 60 Days to Change initiative. Can you talk us through that and what results did you see from it? The 60 Days was a safety challenge. At the 2021 U.S. Hydrographic Conference, again, for listeners outside of North America, USA and Canada alternate who has a conference each year. Odd-numbered years are in the United States. Even-numbered years are in Canada. I sat on a Women in Hydrography panel at the 2021 U.S. Hydrographic Conference. Afterwards, some people spoke to me about what to do next. And as a result of that, after some things, I went to the safety manager in Fugro in North America and said, we need to put the company's money where my big mouth is. I think I use those exact words. And he said, okay. And we dithered back and forth on what to do. And finally we said, okay, what can we do in 60 days? What can we do to make meaningful improvements for women in safety in 60 days? And there's a key word in there and that's meaningful. You don't have to completely overhaul your system in order to make a meaningful and significant change. And in 60 days, we sourced and ordered female fit two-piece coveralls for the women. There were some supply chain delays, so we weren't able to get them to actual female employees by the end of that 60-day period. But we got them in place and we verified that, yes, these are fit for purpose and people liked them. We got some changes to vessel grocery orders related to onboard sanitation and hygiene. We changed a company policy about transportation. No more telling people to use an Uber or a Lyft if they're going to the airport at three o'clock in the morning. You hire a transported limousine to get them there. And I have since had conversations with people in the U.S. and Canadian government agencies with regards to getting safe, female adequate safety equipment on board vessels. And I've also been having those conversations on an inter international level. And it doesn't have to be something difficult, but if you know that you have people with a wide variety of body sizes going to meet a ship, say in Cape Town, and then you're going to sail to Antarctica, call them beforehand and ask what size survival suit they wear and make sure the right size survival suit is on board. It really is that easy, but you have to think of it in the first place. And so I'm really delighted that we've done what we can even in that really short amount of time. And there is a magic point about the 60 days. It is enough time that you can get something done, 
but it's not so much time that people start to get bogged down in overthinking and having too many committees and too many meetings and paralysis by analysis. You gotta snap on and get on with it. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and expertise with us, Helen and, and Sarah. As we come to the end here, do either of you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, there is one example that I wanted to share. There was a survey in the US and 77% of men surveyed responded that most men within their organizations were either active allies or public advocates for gender equity. However, when they asked the same question to women, only 45% said they thought most men within their organizations were advocates for gender equity. So clearly there's a difference in perception. And the question is, are organizations interested in doing something about it? I will add to that, we gave ourselves a limited timeline, like, no, we have to get up and do this right now. We have 60 days to do this. We don't have time to, to sit around dithering. And the effects were so positive and they were so positive immediately, immediately. So I would ask people when you are thinking about this for your own organization, identify that first step don't think about it too hard it can be as simple as getting garbage bins with lids so that people don't have to touch anything going in the waste bin with their hands except for the people who are changing the bin liner and you can do it tomorrow with mm. no repercussions whatsoever it can be as simple as repeating what women say in meetings after they say it which has been shown to dramatically decrease the phenomenon where a woman will say something in a meeting, be ignored, and then 10 minutes later, it will come word for word out of a man's mouth and he'll get the credit for it. That's, that's really all there is to it. But once well, you take that first step, it gets easier and easier and easier because it's not so big and scary. And on that note, I want to take Helen's advice and just repeat and emphasize a a couple of points our guests have made. As Helen has described, we can begin to achieve meaningful change if we start with the problems we can address quickly. Now, we're all familiar with the expressions baby steps, crawl, walk, run, and low-hanging fruit. And as Sarah has explained, there are reports and studies out there that show how we can measure performance on diversity. They show real benefits can be achieved. But we have, we have a long way to go. We'll, we'll share those, I've no doubt, in the, in the show notes. Armed with facts and sound research, we need to challenge those powerful cognitive biases that are holding us back. Helen, Sarah, thank you so much. And, and thank you, our loyal and diverse Planet Beyond audience for listening. Do remember to hit that subscribe button and share widely. As I always say, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>